Well, I'm going to give you the thesis. I always have a thesis, or I call it a 3 a.m. statement. If you're woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning, somebody says, what's the purpose of the sermon? You can spout it out. This is longer than a sentence, but listen, this is the thesis in case we get lost in the weeds in the next 35 minutes. I have the glorious privilege of drawing near to the Lord, James chapter 4, whose arms are always open wide in a Trinitarian embrace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I draw near with humility, dependence, fully aware of Abba Father's goodness and happiness, and thirdly, with a repentance that continually refreshes, restores, and builds fellowship in my life with God who is triune. So that's where I'm going this morning. We're in James chapter 4, where James says this starting in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will, draw, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So two questions, and then we'll get to the parameters of the text. The first is, once again, who are we fighting when it comes to spiritual battle, spiritual warfare? Answer, we are fighting a mortally wounded enemy, the devil, who is referred to as a roaring lion. Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. He beats you up and puts you down. 2 Corinthians 11 says that he disguises himself as an angel of light. He is someone we know from Acts chapter 5 who, who fills the hearts of people with lies. We know that from Revelation, when the Lord writes to the church at Thyatira, and this is what he says, he says, but the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. They're, they're deep things of Satan that people learn. He blinds the minds of unbelievers in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. So we, we fight this this adversary. He was mortally wounded, but he's still thrashing about. After D-Day in 1944, the Allied troops started moving towards Germany, and by December, Hitler hit, hit on a scheme. This was his scheme. Hitler said, I'm going to amass what ended up being a half million men on the Western Front. And we're going to charge through a thick forest area in Belgium and Luxembourg. And we're going to make a drive to the sea and separate the Allied forces and then take our men and beat the Soviets. It was a wild scheme. It wouldn't have worked, but that was what he did. And what's amazing is he, he sold this plan to his generals. We told them about it. And they went, they went into radio silence, which is amazing. They were able to move a half million men on this border. And on the border where they were going, they, they knew that no one would ever p 
push inoffensive through this area because it was heavily forested with rolling hills. And the Allied leadership, rightfully so, said no one will ever go through this dense forest. So we're going to put a very thin line of troops there. And then they did, very thin line of troops. And so on 16 December 1944, Hitler had 20, I think 28 divisions that, that went through these forests and took the Allies completely by surprise and looked like they were going to overwhelm the Allied armies. But a guy named George Patton and a group of people responded and they held, held uh, at, a, at a place called Bastogne. They did, it was an amazing response. But before it was all over, the, United, the U.S. Army had lost almost 20,000 men killed, 25,000 captured. 42,000 uh, wounded. It was a horrible situation. It was called the Battle of the Bulge. After the first service, there was a man who worships here. His name is Bob Martin. He's 94, and he is ramrod straight, and he is a man. And he said, can I have one minute of your time? I said, you can have as many minutes as you want. He said, you know, I was a bombardier who flew at the Battle of the Bulge. And I said, oh, my gosh. He said, from the 16th of December to the 24th of December, we couldn't see the ground, we couldn't fly, we couldn't bomb the Nazis. We were absolutely at their mercy. He said on, the 20, on Christmas Eve, the weather lifted and we were able to bomb them because we had incredible uh, superiority in, in our air reconnaissance. But as I, as I thought about the Battle of the Bulge, there are three things historians say about the Battle of the Bulge that were our undoing. Number one is they said that, that we were unprepared for an assault because we had very thin lines. We thought the, the, the Germans would never attack us, so we were unprepared. Number two, we, we underestimated what the enemy would do. There's no way they can do this, and they did it. Number three, there was horrid weather, so no aerial reconnaissance to see what they were doing, where they were going, and where they were lined up. And as I, th I think about spiritual warfare, number, number one, unprepared. See, some of you, things can happen to us, and we say, man, that was unexpected. Don't ever live with unexpectation. You are in warfare with someone that wants to drink you down. You're in warfare with someone who accuses you day and night. You're in warfare with someone who is a liar and the father of lies. Don't, don't, don't be, live with unexpectation. You, that's, we, we fight against a foe who is relentless. And the, the third thing is there was no aerial reconnaissance. They couldn't see. We have around us an unseen world. Angels, demons. And, and this unseen world is very, very real. So don't live unaware. The, the, the next question is this, how do we fight this warfare? Just by review, first of all, we walk in humble dependence. We say with great conviction of spirit, Jesus is a luxuriant, glorious vine. I'm a twig. I'm a twig. I'm grafted, in fact, I'm grafted in. And as long as I'm abiding in this luxuriant, glorious vine by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can bear fruit, but I can't do it without him. I cannot pull it off. The second thing we do is we, we submit to the Lord, which means we submit to the Word of God and to the people of God. In James chapter 1, this, this well-known passage, that this is what he says, starting in verse 21. He says, therefore, get rid of all filthiness and the rampant moral wickedness and receive with meekness, see there's the word, with humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, if I come to worship 
or I go to Bible study and I receive the word and I don't try to make application, I'm deceiving myself. See, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not saying, Lord, how do you want me to respond to the word of God? You're, you're, you're deceiving yourself. And he says this. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But, but, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed or happy in his doing. So I, I, I'm... So if I'm to fight the devil, I've got to be someone who looks at and thinks at and, and, and makes application of this word to my life. And, and, and I do that in the context of community in an environment of grace. The, the book of James is full of relational issues. Showing favoritism, not being economically honest with people around you. Uh, time after time, it talks about about relationships among people in the community in the body of Christ. So, so I do it with humility and dependence, submitting to the Word of God in an environment of grace with God's people. So, so now this, how, how do I draw near? How do I dare to draw near to the embrace of the living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So three points. Number one, God gives grace to the humble or the dependent. Now, one of my heroes is a guy named William Carey. He's the father of modern-day missions. William Carey was born in 1761 in England, very little education, was converted, uh, ended up feeling that the Lord was calling him to be a, someone who took the gospel to a place that had never been heard. So he goes to India. He goes to India in uh, 17... Shoot. 1791, I think it was. Anyway, something like that. 1792. He goes to India. He's there for 41 years in Calcutta without ever coming home. 41 years. He translates the Bible into seven languages, 20 dialects, uh, establishes a university at a place called Serampore, uh, buries two wives, uh, a child, a grandchild. Um, he, he was just, he was the man. He was the man. He died at age 73 in 19, 18 and 34, 1834, age 73. Um, William Carey, on his birthday every year, would write a letter about his life as he reviewed his life, and he would mail that letter to either a friend or put it in a journal. And he, when he turned 70, he wrote a letter to his son whose name was Jabez. And, and this is what he says in, in his letter. Now, before I read it, I'm going to let you see it. Either this is the musings of a man who has a psychological disorder, or it is the writing of a man who has the heart of Christ. I, I vote for the latter, so I'll just tell you that before I read it. This is William Carey. He's 70 years old. He's been in India for now 31 years, buried two wives. I mean, it's just amazing. He says, I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much for which I ought to be humbled 
in the dust, close quote. That goes against everything you've ever been taught since you were six years old, unless you've read the Bible. I think that reflects the heart of a godly man. So when Carrie dies three years later, they put him in a simple graveyard and they put him up, up, a stone above his, his remains. I've been there twice to see it. And on the stone, it just says, William Carey gives the years of his life, 1764 to, or 61 to 1834. And then it says this, and, and it's, it's a statement from a hymn by a guy named Isaac Watts, a hymn writer. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. That's it. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. William Carey said a few years before this 70th birthday, he said, if I'm ever to get to heaven, it will be because of the divine grace of Jesus and his death upon the cross and that alone. So, so my, my question is, does Carey reflect the heart of a disciple of Christ or is he some type of psychologically deranged individual? I, I, I think he's a godly man. And so I, I think the way we fight the devil is we say, God, I desperately need the grace of Christ every day. See, the, the second part of humility is I'm humble because I see that God is gloriously good and I realize the best is yet to be, that the best things in this life is a dress rehearsal for heaven. Now, I get that from chapter 4, we've been studying. In chapter 4, James says, Verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Not literally, just with your tongue. It's not about how the misuse of the tongue in chapter 3. So you, you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you, you, you ask, but you do not receive because you have horrific motives. You want to spend what you have on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So, so what James is saying here is this. He said, he said the, the reason you're fighting and quarreling and you're coveting is because you want things to pour them out on the, the limited passions of this life. You have no concept of eternity. You don't get heaven. That's why I read the text. You, you don't get heaven. You don't get the, the, the glory of what is to come. You don't get that the, the best gifts of this life are a mere foretaste of the glory to come. I mean, I'm, thank God for wonderful gifts, for beauty. I mean, can you, what a great week to be alive in Charleston. I mean, 85 degrees has been our high all week. It's wonderful. You know, I've had, I had two meals this week, one with some friends, just delightful people. One person called me from Teresa said, we're coming from out of town to celebrate my wife's birthday. Can we take you guys out? That's what she wants. She wants to be with you guys on her birthday. I said, absolutely. You're buying. I'm eating. I'm going, you know? And so, and so we, we did that. And they were, it was a delightful evening. But listen, the, the most wonderful experience is a dress rehearsal for what's coming. And we can forget that. I love weddings. So I'll go to a wedding rehearsal and, you know, if, if the rehearsal dinner is going to be outside, the groomsmen sometimes wear shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops and everybody's dressed very casual. And you have one musician here and not the string quartet that's going to be there the next day. And she plays an intro to what the bride's coming down to and this is where you stand and this is what you do. And the, the bride looks nice, you know. And, um, but then the next day, the next day, I mean, the, 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 the bridesmaids have a professional 
make me look good person come in on Saturday morning and they do their hair and their nails and their feet and their whatever, spray tans, whatever they do in bridal things. And, and uh, they, 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 they look good and the groomsmen come out not in shorts, but in nice suits or tucks. And the bride comes down the aisle and she just looks great. And you have a string quartet. The music is glorious. There are flowers and it's beautiful. And it's just beautiful. That's the real thing. See, the other thing is dress rehearsal. Football season's almost here. These major football programs, you know, Thursday, Thursday night, they'll have their walkthrough. Major college teams, they'll go to the stadium and they'll wear their helmets and jerseys, no pads, and, and they walk through. This is where you stand on special teams. This is where the defense goes. This is offense. This is what, and this is the way you come out or go down the hill or whatever you do. And then there may be 2,000 people there because, you know, some friends are there, family members there. But you say, listen, Saturday night, national TV audience, 84,000 people, marching bands. It's going to be glorious. Full pads. Get it on. That's the event. This is a dress rehearsal. The good things are coming. So, so, see, the reason the people had passions and they fought and they coveted, they forgot the glory of heaven. There's a man named John Donne, great poet. He wrote Death Be Not Proud. He also wrote a book, I mean, a, a poem, wonderful poem that goes something like this. It says, you know, since soon I will join the eternal choir in heaven. I, I tune my instrument here outside the door. And what I will do then, I do now before. In other words, I, I am practicing my art now. I'm practicing worship. I, I'm, I'm giving it my, but boy, the glorious day is coming. And I, so I, I would just say, don't, don't miss out on that glory. So let me share with you. I've been thinking about this. I'm going to write a little paper about this, but it's very simple. Here's my illustration. You're 26, 27, 28, 25, 24, whatever. You get married. I'm going to speak as a man because I'm a man. I can't project. I'm going to speak as a man. So you get married. You're 24, 25. And so there you are, just you two. It's what I call the, it's the seedling right now. It's the seedling. And it's really good. And you're thinking, you know, I've got a job, and if I continue down that job path in 20, 25 years, then in 20 years when I go to the office, people will run to the door and thank me for showing up because I'm going to be very proficient in my work, you know. I'm, I'm going to do it. And this woman I'm marrying, you know, as she really gets to know me, in 15 or 20 years, she may go throughout the city buying small plots of land and erecting statues in my honor. It's going to be good. And, and, and so, really, you're thinking that kind of, sort of. And, 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 and then you go down the road, and then you have a, a boom, a, a, a branch off the sapling, a child. Boom, another sapling. But the problem is they have leaves, and sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're not good. And then you get older. I'm just here where I am. You get older, and all of a sudden, your parents... When you got married and they were 58 and 57, and they were just, they were always there for you and they loved you. And they, and I have great parents, I have great in laws. All of a sudden, your parents at this age need you to care for them. 
No one ever told me when I was 25, you know, these people one day in 30 years are going to need you. Nobody told me that. But boom, there's some more shoots that come off. And, and the more the tree grows, the more, the more shoots. I mean, it's just there. And, and, and it, when, some, when, you're, when you're young, sometimes you think, I've got this. Let me tell you, the older I get, the more I say, I don't have this. I really don't have this. You have kids and you think, well, you know, looking down the quarter of history, I, I can see potentially where ESPN will be interviewing me in about 22 years. And it's the, the night of the NFL draft. And my son's going to be a first-round draft pick. And they want to come into my house and watch us eat wings and wait to see who's going to pick him in the first round. We want to be there to see that. That's the good news. The bad news is your daughter is an incredibly gifted cellist. And she's the guest cellist for the New York Philharmonic tonight in New York. So am I going to stay home with ESPN or go to New York? It's such a decision. It's not the way it always works out. Um, so I, I say that to say we desperately need grace and have a taste of heaven. C.S. Lewis wrote a little book called Mere Christianity. I read it every year. It is so good. And he's got a chapter in there on Christian hope. And he says when it comes to the area of hope, there, there are three avenues. And I think he's broad, broadly speaking, he's, he's correct. He says there is, number one, is the fool's way. The fool's way is the man who says in middle age, he says, if only I'd married a different woman, if only I'd had different kids, if only I'd had a different job, if only I'd gone into a different career, then I would really succeed and I wouldn't be stuck in this rut. And he says, you, you, he, Lewis says that, that's just the fool's way. The, the second way is the disillusioned but sensible man. He says, the disillusioned but sensible man says, well, the whole thing is a bunch of baloney. Uh, life is tough and then you die. There's nothing after death. So I'm going to just, I'm just going to medicate myself or take up little hobbies. And I'm not going to be vulnerable. And I'm just going to be a disillusioned and sensible old man. Limited investments, limited returns. That's the way I'm going to live. And it's, it's easy to do that. But Lewis says, there is a, there's a third way. And that's the Christian way. The Christian way says, every gift I have is glorious, but it's a foretaste of what's coming. Heaven is going to be glorious. See, my, my belief is that if, if I do not embrace the hope of heaven, it's very likely that I will become a disillusioned, jaded, and quietly angry man. I, I believe that. So a part of humility is embracing the hope of heaven. In Philippians 4, there is a statement made by the Apostle Paul. And he says this. He says, verse 11, writing from prison, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and having hunger, of having abundance or suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, now first of all, if you ever read any athletic publication by Christians, every athlete's favorite verse is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, probably because it's very short, okay? But, but really... The rationale behind this verse is 
Paul says, you know, he says, I've been in prison where they didn't feed me. Now, I'd much rather live in a city like Ephesus where we had wonderful meals every night for two years. But that's okay, I have Christ. He says, I've been stoned and left for dead, which he was. I'd much rather live in a comfortable apartment. But you know what? I found the secret is Christ. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been snake bit. And I prefer not to do any of those things. But I've learned the secret, and the secret is my position and who I am in Christ and the hope that that brings to my life. Do you get that? If you're going to fight the devil, you've got to get it. In 1988, there was a movie released that I really enjoyed. It was entitled Cool Runnings. It was a Disney movie. It was fun, starring John Candy, who was an incredibly gifted comedian. The story was loosely based, and I say loosely based, on a true story. Uh, there's a Canadian, or excuse me, a Jamaican a sprinter who was disqualified from the Olympics, and so we wanted to go to some Olympics, and so he became someone who tried to put together the first ever bobsled team from Jamaica. Now, if you don't understand Jamaica, there's no snow in Jamaica. So a bobsled team in Jamaica is an oxymoron, but they, they put it together. And in the movie, they hired a coach who was uh, John Candy, who was uh, incredibly funny. And the whole movie is just funny, funny, funny. And then at, at the, there, there was a serious moment where the leader of the bobsled team, the Jamaicans, said something to John Candy. Uh, and John Candy said, well, we know the truth is I was disqualified from the Olympics because I cut corners and I cheated. And he said, he said, you know, you, you guys um, really want to, be, want to be in the Olympics, but you know, that's not the end I'll be. Then he makes this statement. I just thought, it's very, it's a, it was profound. I know it's Disney. I know it's a comedy. But, but he says this. If you are not enough without it, i.e. the Olympics, you will never be enough with it. Now think about that. If you're, if you're not enough without it, You'll never be enough with it. The man or the woman without Christ always has something else they want. They're never satisfied. I believe that. There's always another mountain to climb, another something to do, another person to pass in the sales race. There's always this. And the truth is, if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. For us, we understand the glory and the goodness of Christ. How am I going to fight the devil? God gives grace to the humble. Part of being humble is understanding he is God and that glory awaits and it is wonderful. The second way I fight the devil is that I celebrate the goodness of the Father. And, and, and it's, let me just read some verses. I believe the... Um, our position is to be happy and joyful in the Lord. Somebody said, well, I believe in Christian joy but not happiness. I believe in both. I think happiness is a glorious thing. It's the result of knowing your sins are forgiven. So I don't make that distinction. But let me just read some verses. Deuteronomy 33. Happy. See, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. 
Proverbs 15, 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. I love that. A continual feast. Mm. Deuteronomy 31, talking about the new covenant, what will happen when God comes and Messiah King rules in our hearts. Listen, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Radiant over the goodness of the Lord, not over my position or what I'm doing. This is, over the grain and the wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry and I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow, joy, happiness, some. 9 says, I will be glad and exult in you, Psalm 43. Then I will go to the altar to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Francis of Assisi, who died in 1226, said this. Let us leave sadness to the devil and his angels. As for us, what can we be but rejoicing and glad? <laughs> Spurgeon. The British preacher who died in the 1890s, there is nothing that more tends to strengthen the faith of young believers than to hear the veteran missionary or veteran Christian covered with scars from the battle testifying that the service of his master is a happy service and that if he could have served any other master, he would not have done so for his service is pleasant and his reward is everlasting joy. So, uh, you look at this and you have to realize that, that celebrating the goodness of the Father is part of, of battling the devil. And yet, I want to go to this text now. I'm going to deal with it in a few minutes. So, this is the text I'm going to read and make a few comments on. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop, right there. So, so what's great about this passage it does not say, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, then come to God. Look at the order. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It's all of grace. And as you draw near to God, and as you come to Him, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, I need to have a radical vision of a Savior who loves me and died on the cross for my sin and poured out the Holy Spirit on His church and rose victorious over death and is now in heaven. See, I, I don't clean up and come to God. I run to the Father, messy, I'm messy all over, and He embraces me. Just run to the Father. He embraces you. And then you get cleaned up. And then it says this. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, years ago, it was very popular, um, maybe it still is today, for people to have life verses. People would pick a passage and say, this is the, my life verse. It's always about uh, grace or mine was Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 that talks about let, let, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the mighty man boast of his might or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That, that, that type. So that's what you would choose. 
if, if you're ever in a group and you say, what is your life verse? And someone says, well, my life verse is James 4, 9. Run. Leave the group. That person is weird. Let me read it again. It's a hard verse. Listen, be wretched, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's a hard verse. What James is saying, though, is this. He says, he says, he says that true repentance a turning from sin opens the door to the wonderful embrace of Abba Father. Repentance is done quickly, opens the door. And he says, we live in an age, James is saying, and we do too, where flippancy is the word of the month. People don't take their sins seriously. People just go, oh, well, it happens. Oh, well, that's one. Oh, well, oh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and James said, no, no, listen, if you want to fight the devil, grieve over your sin and make adjustments before the living God and do the right thing. But don't be flippant. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis, supposedly a senior demon is writing to a junior demon, and this is what they say. If prolonged the habit of flippancy, who cares? Builds up around a man the finest armor plating against God that I know. And the question I ask you, I ask me, is are you sensitive to sin? And when sin hits, and it will, do you run to the Father? And say, Father, have mercy on me in the name of Jesus and change me. So that's why John Calvin, John Calvin, the great reformer, developed a, a seal, and it was a, a heart being held by a hand. And the seal said, my heart, I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Promptly and sincerely. Let me tell you how I think it works. An example, I'm, this will be a silly example. Let's say you are into road racing on a bicycle. And you have a friend, and you enter into road racing endeavors together, and your friend does well financially, and he prospers, and you're just kind of not doing well financially. So you're still riding on the same road bike that you had three years ago, this, this just, just this $500 bike. But he goes out, and he buys a $7,000 Italian road racer. And that's probably pretty low from some of those bikes. It's amazing. That you can lift with this finger, and it's just fast, and it's good, and it's sleek, and you are nauseated about your friend. And so you have secret thoughts in your mind, like, I would love for a dog to hit that bike while he's going downhill, and then he would crash and destroy that bicycle. You made me think, and he might break a leg. And you have these thoughts, and you just, well, listen, that's between you and the Lord. You go to God and say, God, forgive me for coveting. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Forgive me for thinking ill in my heart about this, this man who just is, is, is enjoying it. Forgive me, Lord. And you deal with it. And you start thanking God for him. And you start praying God's blessings upon him. Lord, may he finish in second place this week right behind me, but may he finish second. 
But here's what, here's what, so, so the, the, the scripture is very clear that, that if there's a sin that's between you and the Lord, you deal with it. What you don't do, you don't go to your friend and say, you know, I've got to talk to you about something. I've been coveting your bicycle. And I, I have been having wicked thoughts about you because you bought a $7,000 Italian bike and I'm driving my mama's Schwinn bike that she bought in 1920. You, that's taking the monkey off of your back and putting it on his as well. That doesn't do anybody any good. You deal with it. But if you go to a mutual friend and you say to a mutual friend, you know, the Italian bike rider really is a jerk. He makes me sick. Do you see how he wears these aerodynamic type things? You know, and he's, he's, he's really become very arrogant on his Italian bike. I don't like him. You brought somebody else into the, into the picture. So in my opinion, you, you take that brother with you, that friend with you, and you go to his friend and say, I sinned against you. I, I sinned against you. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say those things. I, I was wrong. That's, what you, that's just one silly example. But, but uh, I look at this and I go, you know, am I serious about sin? Because sin clouds my vision. Sin keeps me from enjoying the full embrace of the Father, not because he doesn't love me, it's because I'm ashamed to go to him. So run, run to the Father. And as you run, make adjustments in your lifestyle. If it's between you and the Lord, deal with it. If you've done it, public, public sin. The, the Bible says, this, this is embracing stuff. In 1 Timothy, it says, if an elder has sinned on the testimony of two or three witnesses, he should be publicly exposed so the rest of the church will take warning. And the warning is, this is serious. This is serious stuff. Sin is serious. I talked to somebody the other day, you know, I think there are biblical grounds to divorce. This person said to me this. I was just, I was flabbergasted. This person says, you know, my, uh, my husband and I used to go to church here 20-some years ago. I think she said that. We moved. And she says, we're divorced now. I said, I am so sorry. She said, oh, it's no big deal. She says, we just couldn't get along. He's still my best friend. And I thought, what a lie. What a lie. You really believe that? It's a lie from the father of lies. You destroyed a covenant marriage because he said potato, you said potato. Give me a break. That works well in Hollywood, but not in Zion. That's one example. So I, I just, this is a hard sermon. If you're, if you're a guest, it's not this way every Sunday. You know, it's really not. It's, uh, but this is, this is a tough passage, it really is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, and uh, thank you for the, the clarity of the Bible. Thank you that you don't have to be a PhD in linguistic literature to understand the Bible. And we thank you that it's clear. Thank, thank you that James writes with searing clarity. A clarity. So thank you for that. And I, I pray, Lord, that we would be people who fight the good fight by walking in humility and dependence and thinking about the glory of heaven. I, I pray that we be, be people who fight the good fight because we realize that Abba Father 
the suffering Savior, the outpoured Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian nature of God is glorious and full of energy and laughter and life. And we want to be part of that. The overflow of the worship. And I pray that we'd be people who fight the good fight because we're not flippant about our sin. We're not flippant about things that we have left undone that should have been done. We're not flippant about things that we have done. But that we live with a a sense of God-ordained responsibility as unto you. Thank you, Jesus, you taught your disciples to pray. May we not be led into temptation. And we pray that. So, God, show us how to live well and to love well and to be used of you to the glory of your holy name. We praise you in Jesus' name.